welcome to Loud and Clear, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in music. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Amy Webster. Amy has an ARCT in piano teaching, and she's an enthusiastic music educator of 26 years. She owns a music studio and is a YouTuber. Amy excels in creatively presenting music lessons with enthusiasm and focuses carefully on each student's individual learning style to bring out the best in their growth as individuals and musicians, and she enjoys seeing students take on new challenges with confidence as they learn music that inspires them. Hello and welcome, Amy. Thanks for coming on Loud and Clear. I'm excited to chat with you today. How are you doing? Oh, it's such an honor to be here, Olivia, and I'm well and excited to chat today. Awesome. I was wondering if you could tell our audience a bit more about yourself and what led you down the path of becoming a musician. Well, I love that question to start with because my my journey into being a musician has been a little bit more of a wandering tale. Mm-hmm. And I love that you use the word musician because to be honest, I never considered myself a musician, even after years of playing and working alongside teachers in our community that were very supportive. I think I always identified myself as a teacher and an educator. Mm-hmm. So the journey to becoming a feeling like a musician actually (laughs) happened more on YouTube that I thought, hey, I actually am a musician and I share music and I love it. So yeah, that was just like a sneak peek of my journey. But that's so interesting because we had Karen Garrelis on earlier in this season and she talks about her researches on I am a musician and musicians that self-identify as as musicians. And she said for years, despite having an ARCT in piano, didn't feel like she was a musician. And so it's it's always interesting when we're like self-identifying with that label. You're the founder of Motif Music Studios. Yes. Yes. And so that is a multi-teacher online studio. You also have a YouTube channel. So before we get into talking more about the YouTube channel, which will be like, I think the bulk of our discussion, I wanted to ask you about your online studio options. And what was it that drew you to the online model? Was it COVID or did it happen before that? Yeah, that is always an exciting conversation. My husband and I started Motif together in 2010. And it was Mm -hmm. in fact a collaborative music studio with a brick and mortar location with five beautiful studio rooms and a real culture in a really unique arts community called Tin Town. There are all these tin clad buildings that look really artsy (laughs) and amazing. So this was pre-kids that we started that. And it was just sprung out of a, you know, a desire to bring teachers together in a really education focused biome. But then the leap to online did happen like it happened for lots of educators during COVID. And we made that decision really fast. And I think part of it was because I knew that I couldn't juggle both sides of things. I knew that in order to put my energy into keeping the studio afloat, I had to choose one and just go for it. So April 1st of 2020, we were a fully online studio. And so that did spring out of that world. um, Yeah. So that was like the decision was made that you would no longer be using the building and everything would, would be taking place online. I love that through Motif, you've got these different courses that people can try out 
different modes of learning. You've got rote classes, you've got group classes, you have, um, I was snooping around on there the other day, you have black key only classes for beginners and different levels of string classes for different blocks of time. What drew you to setting up those different streams of lessons? Because I think it's a unique model than signing up for, you know, 40 lessons a year, but you can try this out for 10 weeks, or you can try this out for 12 weeks. What sort of drew you to that model? Yeah, I love that curiosity because you're right in the fact that we do have our studio based on individual lessons. But when we defined our core values as a studio, one of them that came up again and again was collaboration and community. So when I thought of like, bringing people into community, I thought, well, that's really tricky to do in a solitary art, you know, and so piano making, I thought at first when we were in a brick and mortar location, we started with these workshops, you know, every six weeks, bringing people together and we'd have different themes. So we might do a rhythm workshop where we'd bring in the bucket drums and the boom whackers and focus on elevating rhythm and bringing people together. So we had many series of those. But then when we went online, we thought, wow, we're really going to need to be creative for this. So we started those little mini modules, if you will, of the rote teaching, especially. I thought, oh, I want people to like experience actual music making from early on. And I had never been more of a rote teacher. So that felt like a big stretch. And so we found that it just answered that question of removing barriers for families, letting them try something for a shorter amount of time, and then bringing people together in music, even if they were online. So I think that's what sprung out of those little mini modules. And then some of them were just whoever we had on staff that had a passion for a certain style of teaching, we'd say, okay, let's see if we could make this into an eight-week course or a Mm 10-week course. And that reminds me, I need to update the website with the new offerings for (laughs) the fall. But yeah, that's how we started that. That's so fun. And you know, it's interesting because music lessons are are unique in the fact that it's typically like a, a big commitment. Like if you're going to try out piano lessons, like you need to, you need to have a piano in your home and you need, you know, it's a really big financial commitment. So I think even doing those little modules, someone could rent an instrument or borrow an instrument for a couple of months to try it out. See if this is, if this really is for me. And then later on commit to lessons, but you're starting out in that group environment. I think that sort of short-term idea is, is a really unique model that you probably can only do in a a larger studio setting, right? I'm not somebody that can do that as like a a solo teacher in my studio, but I love that there is that option out there. And because it's virtual, do you find that people are joining from all over? Yeah, we did have students, especially even on Vancouver Island, we found that we were getting more remote parts of the island that wouldn't have been able to Mm. access lessons and some from different provinces. So we didn't do a ton of marketing outside of our area because we were kind of just feeling it all out. But we definitely have had students join us from other places that's been really, really rewarding. And we did do some things that would suit a solo teacher. Something I experimented with this past year was something called an online practice club. So even if a teacher has a small space, I did a drop-in online practice club where anyone could come in. We'd work on like building one aspect of their 
practice toolbox and then we'd practice independently with mics muted and then come back on to ask questions or to show off a little piece of what they'd done. So that was a model that we experimented with that would work for solo teachers as well. Oh, fun. That's really interesting. I have a friend that that did that during COVID is practice buddy sessions. So I love that. Okay. So I met you through your YouTube channel and you say that you came into being a music YouTuber by accident. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I just, when I started on YouTube, I actually just was struggling with uploading a video for my students, actually one of the rote teaching classes that I needed this demo video. And it was a little bit too long to just sand or do Dropbox and stuff. I was struggling with it. So I thought, oh, we have this old YouTube channel. It has 18 subscribers and a few student videos from long ago. So I'll just upload it on YouTube. And so I did that for a little bit. It was just handy and convenient. And then one day, like I heard about this guitar YouTuber and she'd kind of created this culture online and helping people. And I thought, wow, that's really fun. I could like scroll Facebook aimlessly or I could start creating content and just like honing my own musicality and hopefully sharing some things that inspire others as well. So that's how I got started. That's so fun. And how long ago was that? I guess that's like two and a half years now or so. So yeah, it's been quite the journey and it's morphed as we've progressed. So as your online audience has gotten bigger, do you get more nervous about uploading uploading videos? That's a really good question because I feel like it does add a magnifying glass to like little insecurities that might already be there. So I Mm -hmm. think that like struggle of comparison or those things that were like, wow, there's someone like watching me teach. And I've always felt more private about that, even though I was like loving teaching and had a big studio of private students. But you're right. There is a little aspect of you put it out into the world and you're thinking, oh my goodness, um, I hope that was okay. And yet it also gives you some courage because you realize we're all learning and growing And those things that hold us back really hold us back from mm-hmm. from just enjoying being creative. So it's it's been really good for me to just practice staying creative. Yeah. And I think it's important that as music teachers, like if we want to continue to be music teachers, that we're also learning music. We're also practicing performing. If we're going to put our students through that, that it's also important that we're honing our skills. And it's not just, you know, we get the degree and then I don't need to memorize music ever again. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. And I find being a YouTuber or content creator has lots of parallels with music making because when you first start, you really are just practicing, you're putting it out there. And I really wasn't thinking I'd have more people watching than the five people that were in my class. So Mm -hmm. I hadn't figured out audio or video. I'm in a really small space. It's 24 square feet. I'm in a closet. So (laughs) figuring out camera and stuff. So I really just chuckle at my first videos. And then I know like a year from now, I'll be chuckling at my recent videos and going, oh, wow, I've learned so much. But I think if you don't start, then you don't start on that learning and just practicing that has to happen to get to the next step. Absolutely. So over on uh, Motif Music Studios on YouTube, you've got lots of videos introducing new music and how to teach those pieces which is just so helpful for music teachers because sometimes new music can be scary to some teachers, right? If they feel really comfortable teaching a a set of pieces, you know, that they've always taught like Mozart's, you know, minuets or, or, or whatever, that teaching newer music or contemporary music that they don't know 
can be scary. They don't know if they're teaching it right. What was it that got you interested in investing in this medium of music teaching? Yeah, that was a whole other journey to itself. Because when I first started, I didn't know if I was like teaching to like adult students that I had or like young students or like who my demographic was. So as as it progressed, I realized that teachers were actually in my audience and they were so supportive. They were excited to learn from music that I might be finding. So then I thought, oh, this feels so natural because at Motif Music Studios for all those years previous, we're in ending our 13th year. I realized that I'd been mentoring teachers already and mm-hmm. I was learning from them just as much as they were learning from me, but it felt really natural to on YouTube be presenting contemporary music. It also helped to not have all the copyright strikes because they were newer pieces that people hadn't heard of. And I also found the composers were really encouraged by it because it's really hard to promote your own music. And so it helped me. I felt like I wasn't promoting myself. I got to promote them and then it was helpful Mm -hmm. for them. So it just started to feel really awesome. That's so great. So did you find yourself developing collaborations and partnerships with other composers once they found you? Were they sending you music? Is that sort of an ongoing partnership that happens with you and and other composers? Yeah, it's still in such new stages in some ways. It happened last summer. I thought to myself, well, I've been like sharing about their music and they were actually resources that I'd been purchasing. I purchased um, like Brock Charts music and I was, I think, his first customer for this series. So that was exciting. But then I thought to myself, well, it'd be fun to actually hear from the composer. Maybe people are tired of hearing me talk. (laughs) So so then I sent out five invitations to kind of contemporary creatives and a list of calendar dates. And within six hours, all five of them were booked. Amazing. Oh my goodness. Now I have to figure out how to go live (laughs) and how to do an interview because I hadn't done that yet. (laughs) Um, But yeah, now I have lots of composers reach out. I still try to purchase the music as often as I can, because I know that even though they benefit from being on the channel, it's still a small channel. And I really want people to see the value in that work. So Mm -hmm. I have purchased way more music than um, anticipated for a year. So I I always tease that I don't think my husband's eyebrows have gone down. (laughs) They're (laughs) continually like, oh, the printer's something again. Another package has arrived. Yeah. Yeah, but it's been really life-giving to get to know the composers. I've been so inspired about how lifelong creativity is. So lots of the composers are in different decades of their music making. So just realizing that we're in a career that just lasts, we can continue learning, we continue growing as musicians, and we get to share that in a broader community. So that was a really fun fun aspect for me. That's wonderful. What's something that you've noticed has changed from when you first started uploading videos on YouTube, fast forward to two and a half years later, where your channel's grown quite a bit. What have been changes that have happened in your YouTube journey? Well, probably one of the biggest is that I'm starting to find my niche. And I really had a hard time with that because I am like a really spontaneous person. It really brought out that aspect of just doing it because I really liked it. Mm -hmm. And I also get a little bit stuck when I feel like I have 
to do something because I think a lot of my life is really sequence directed that it's stuff I have to do. (laughs) Um, And so YouTube for me was just like, I do it because I want to. So if I open a book and I see a song I like, I just upload it, which isn't like always the best strategy, but it was life-giving for me. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the change is now I think a little bit more about who I might be talking about on the other side of the camera. So I know that I'm probably not stepping a student through it. I'm probably talking to another colleague, although they do share the videos with students. So there's like always that like, oh, how do how do you balance that? So that's changed. I'm still really slow on learning the technology, but I'm learning editing skills very slowly. (laughs) Um, And I learned how to live stream, which is actually really life giving that does still make me a little touch nervous, but it really saves on the editing time. So when I go live on Friday, I can keep it as sequenced as possible. And I try to stay organized with the questions. So it's like time saving for someone to listen back. And I do have a structure, but it does save me on the editing, which is a lot, lot of work for that. Yeah, that's great. What do you consider the most challenging part of working as as a creative in this digital space? Well, I think probably the things that you touched on, like that fear of failure or not being good enough, definitely can sneak in there that you're like, okay, like, especially when you're teaching and I think you play something and you're like, oh, I hope there wasn't a mistake in there. (laughs) Because I'm used to like, when you're playing live, you're just so happy if you get something musically, you're like, hey, I rocked that and no one would know. Well, on YouTube, they probably know because they'll be looking at the score and like learning it and they'll be like, oh, wow, that was interesting. So I think you're always balancing that part of like, hey, we're sharing music with the world. And yet I also kind of love the fact of having some mistakes in there because we can swear way over to the computerized side mm-hmm. where you really lose that aspect of it is an actual person that's presenting music and showing. So I'm trying not to like apologize if there's some nuances or added rubato or things like that. So those are things that I'm learning and growing in as well on mm-hmm. YouTube. What about what is the most enjoyable part of, of working in this creative digital space? Yeah, I definitely think the people I've met, I didn't expect to like have YouTube friends, <laughs> you know, like meet people from all over the world, like be yes. in communication with someone like Angeline Bell here that does my quirky notebook and my lyrical notebook. I mean, now we get to message often and like, hey, how are you doing? What's what's coming up in your world? And so many of the other composers too. It's become a friendship. And that was really special to me. I've raised three little kids in the midst of, you know, a tricky decade of business mm-hmm. ownership and so I've been very much at home and I'm fairly social. So it was just really special to say, hey, we're yeah. like meeting new creators. They're all on their own journeys. And so that's been something super special. And the other thing would actually be more that identity as a musician. Like I get to keep honing my own music making and I was a late bloomer. So I felt like <laughs> hey, I get to keep improving here, which is such a gift. Of course. That's wonderful. So if there are musicians listening who are looking to develop their own video skills and online presence, or maybe it's a teacher listening and saying, Hey, I would like to develop a course, like the courses that you have at at Motif. What is your recommendation or encouragement for those musicians? Oh, that's so good. I think probably to like know what's life-giving for you. And I've learned that alongside a lot of creators that I've worked with, as well as our own teaching team, 
is people really thrive best when they're moving into zones of strength and comfort. So it's not that we don't stretch into new things. We do that all the time. But if something sparks in you, then do it. And I think also there's so much that holds us back. So it's like just having the courage to be like, you know what? I think I'd like to do that. Well, give it a try. And it doesn't define who you are as a person. And I think that's important too, that you can put art into the world and it doesn't affect your identity if 10 people dislike your video. And that will happen in the creative space. (laughs) So that's another like aspect of it that teachers going into it, it really helps shape who am I as an individual and what is my identity? And then can I handle when it's positive? And then if there are those negatives in the space, how do do you handle that? Right? Right. Of course. I like what you said about growing into spaces of strength and comfort. I think that's a really great perspective because it's awesome to push ourselves to the edge of our comfort zone, but we, we don't have to live there all the time. And then too, we also don't want to totally live in our comfort zone and not learn anything new, right? But growing in strength and comfort, I, I really like that perspective. When you were taking steps to develop and launch your online courses with Motif, what were some key steps in sequencing those courses? Yeah, those ones I mostly did live so not as much recorded courses so I would say choosing a goal like for me choosing who my audience would be like say for the chilling on the black keys that I chose a resource from wonder keys I was like oh this is accessible it really works well for ages kind of five to seven or six to eight and then I kind of broke it down into a theme so that one's like penguin themed so I was like looked at the course I thought you know I can probably develop this in like a 10 week or an eight-week class, what are the core elements I want? Mm -hmm. I do go off script a lot, but I always am a teacher that does have a guideline in front of me. So I think that element of who's my audience and what do I actually want to deliver to them? Mm -hmm. And another thing that I didn't do very much before I was online was as much exploratory music and rote teaching. So that also freed me up a lot because I thought, you know what, I can have them push the pedal down and start to play black keys and it's going to sound great. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to make music right away. And so giving more time and space for your audience to, to create actual music. So for creating courses, I would say, yeah. And then pricing them correctly, like speaking to teachers here, Mm -hmm. like making sure to not be like, oh yeah, I'm going to bring in $200 an hour if I price it. No, you, you got to realize that (laughs) I'm in front of the student and then there's all the extra administrative if anyone has to not join the class after half the time something mm-hmm. happens or like knowing your policies around that so that's really yeah. cool and eventually maybe I will create some like recorded courses that's big in the industry and every time I circle back to it though I think I'm not quite ready I feel a bit more mm. pressure surrounding that and I think oh well then I actually don't have to do it yet you yeah know? wait for the right idea to come my way absolutely so when you're doing your online courses and you're teaching live uh, what platform do you use do you use zoom to use Forte? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's changing quite a bit. Mm. We had loved using Musico for our mm. intake. They don't do group lessons on that, but that was where I had the lesson plan timeline. So that was super easy for me because I could write the lesson plan once. I could have a video reminder, an audio track duet all the things in one spot. Mm -hmm. And then with one button, it goes to my whole group online. So that was super time saving. So musical for that aspect. And then that 
program has an embed link where they were joining on Zoom. And we've had good luck with Zoom. Part of it is I've changed my teaching style a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, if it slows or there's a glitch, you've got lots to practice on your side. And I'll be preparing something on my side. Like we're not wasting the time because there's a lag. So that's really helped. But recently we do have a few that Zoom isn't as great if they haven't got all their updates on. So yeah, <laughs> progress. But usually Zoom and musical for me. Nice. Nice. I haven't heard of musical. So I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. Yeah. I've been experimenting a little bit between Zoom and Forte as a music platform, mm-hmm. which has been quite interesting too. So you also have your own podcast called Coffee with Composers. Can you tell us a little bit more about what goes on there? Yeah. So the Coffee with Composers, that started as me thinking, oh, I want to talk to these creatives and just figure out like what inspires them in their music making and what it's like to be a composer. And so I was super honored to have composers, even Christopher Norton and his wife, Wendy Edwards Beardon-Lorton and Susan Staples-Bell. So quite a collection of these fabulous creatives. So we just chat how they got their start in music, maybe some challenges that came up in their early music journey or some successes. Also like teachers that really encouraged their journey. And I love that question because it was really special to hear of those unique people in their journey that actually nurtured that progress for them and that process. So that I haven't turned into, it's a video podcast on right now, but I do have thoughts of like putting it on a podcast platform. So I think as I'm honing things, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I think I'm, I'm getting there. It's a different scene. The people that hang out on YouTube versus the people that hang out in pod. It's like, it's their own communities, right? Yeah, it does seem like for sure. But it's nice to have the video podcast too, because then you're seeing, you're seeing people's faces like this podcast, you know, is we're audio only at this point, but, but yeah, it is nice to be able to like, connect and and see people's facial reactions and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. it is. And it has a little unique aspect that we do have a live audience there. So sometimes Mm -hmm. there is that connection of bringing people kind of into your living room. But I love that with podcasts and I'm starting to listen to way more. So I can't wait to hear more of your podcast. And I think it's a really beautiful way to also be a little bit more unhooked from technology a bit when you're listening to a podcast that you can actually be in your garden or you can be like doing dishes and things like that. And you're not as distracted as with something that's more video centric. So yeah, absolutely. I love listening to podcasts on my commute or on, on walks and stuff like that. So I agree with you. It's nice to be able to multitask with the use of a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) What are you enjoying in your musical life right now? Yeah. When I read that question, I thought, oh my goodness, what am I enjoying? I think I've allowed myself this gift of being a distracted squirrel in this season. (laughs) Like, you know, when you're preparing for exams and you're a student, I had like this focus repertoire that was like had deadlines. I had to be on stage by this time and I had to do an exam by this time and I had to check all the boxes. So I think this has been a season of just play what I want, play what's in front of me. So often because I still have like three kids under nine, it is just in little bursts of inspiration. And I pick up a lot of my student music that I'm teaching. So I've been enjoying things like Elizabeth Swift wrote an arrangement of True Colors and Time After Time, like old Cindy favorites. So if I've got students learning stuff that I actually need to play and practice, then those top 
of my list. And then if I have a composer that I'm featuring, I'll be playing a lot of that music. So that's usually right now what I'm playing. But I have pulled out a few of my older repertoire. And for another topic is that a decade ago, I lost the use of my right hand. So and then we'll get into that later. But that also has given me the chance to enjoy repertoire that's at an easier level and actually be like, this is beautiful music. And yet recently I've been like, oh, wow, I think I can actually play that Brahms again, or I think I can play the Mm -hmm. Chopin again. So that's been a real, real gift for sure. Fun. Wonderful. Well, it's been just such a pleasure getting to chat with you. You just exude this positivity as a musician. We're going to wrap up our chat with a few rapid fire questions. No wrong answers. Just go with your gut. Hey. Can you point to a moment when you knew you wanted to be a musician? I was going to answer something differently, but I think the first time I heard my teacher play Pachelbel's Canon, which is a funny one because lots of musicians are like, no, not Pachelbel's Canon. (laughs) But I remember hearing her play it and thinking, I didn't think I liked classical repertoire. And I thought, I want to play that. Mm -hmm. Like, I want that in my Mm -hmm. fingers. So now that I think of it fast, I think that was a moment for me. I love it. Favorite piece or song to perform or play right now? Yeah, I haven't played on stage for a while live, although I'm recording all these. But I would say one on my list to bring out is the Blackbird Arrangement by Alessandra Delfini. But it's not my usual groove because I usually go for things that are very lyrical and have a lot of space to them. Some better, slower pieces. But this one has a lot of that motor rhythm that almost feels like Baroque-ish, but it's actually an arrangement of the Beatles uh, Blackbird. So it's one that I really, really love. And I'm going to hone it for more of a public performance. Oh, so fun. Have you ever been given bad career advice? And what was it? Wow, that's a big one. I think although I've had lots of people nurturing super positive things, I think like bad career in our our environment is that thought of doing something for passion (laughs) because we are passionate. We're musicians. Mm -hmm. But I think the aspect of ask around to see what people are charging in your area, that was actually kind of bad advice early on for me because I found out a lot of teachers were seriously undercharging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I had that advice early on, I started doing the math and thinking, yeah, but it actually would be better for me to to work at the local grocery store. I'd make more. So early on in my career, I actually told my own teachers (laughs) and said, "Um, I don't think I'm the better teacher, but my rates are going to be more than yours because I realized that I'm going to have to do another job if I don't charge this. So that was like a pivotal moment for me and some like working through some maybe bad cultural advice, not specifically from a person, but like in that like I just do this on the side. Kind Certainly. Of. And I think that, I mean, prior to sort of piano pedagogy being a real like educational emphasis, like you can get degrees in teaching piano and, and all of this, that it was just a side job. You know, the, the lady down the street taught it or whoever taught the choir also taught piano on the side. And there is nothing wrong with that. But now people like you and I are are choosing it as a legitimate career choice that we've been educated to do. And so it's a little bit of a different approach. It you is. Know? Yeah. And I feel that if if we can follow that like charge what you need to mantra, 
then it means we'll preserve educators because I think it, it starts to be like we're losing educators because you can't make a living and people need to make a living. So yeah. that's been something when we started Motif 2 was just like elevating that value of really wonderful professionals that were heart-led and super qualified. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, what is good musical or career advice that you can pass on to other musicians? Well, I think we almost touched on that. Yeah. <laughs> But I also think just leaning into strength, that would be another theme for me. I know at Motif, when we intake new students, we have a thing where I ask like kind of random questions on our intake, like what's your child's hobbies? But that question almost always tells me the most about a future student. I asked that question too. <laughs> it. Isn't that great? Because I find if they enjoy Lego and they're mathematical and mm -hmm. they're doing all these linear things, then I would often pair them with a teacher who has a very linear style and who works like strategically through a lesson book or progressive. And then if I get a child who they're saying like they're doing flips even in the living room and they're like super active but they're playing on the piano and finding their own tunes then I would say oh we have this perfect teacher who's super creative who does composition with her students and does rote learning and so that's something I love to think about when you're intaking a student mm -hmm. and teachers don't always have the choice to send them to a different teacher sure, <laughs> like yeah. we have we can adjust to lots of different clients but I think that just knowing those different strengths of your student and, and leaning into how you can be the best teacher for them is great advice and something that we can strive for, right, as educators. Absolutely. And leaning into our own strengths also sort of eliminates this idea of comparison between, you know, like, oh, I'm the better teacher because I do X, Y, Z, but it's really, it's like, oh, what are your strengths? And I have, I have a friend that lives down the street from me that's a Suzuki teacher. And so first for um, parents that want to go into that Suzuki method and that rote based learning for the for the very beginning, great, I could I know the perfect teacher for you, you know, and and vice versa, they send students to me as well. And so it builds more of that community rather than saying that everyone needs to be the same. One of my best friends teaches lots of toddler music classes and just loves it. And that is not my strength in, in any sort of way. But it's like that is that is their strength. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think the other thing would be just teaching the student in front of you. Like sometimes yeah. all this ideas in our head and we might have a lesson plan or we might have things we expect, but then suddenly the student comes and maybe they're having a hard day or they're not regulated or their sensory systems on fire. And we just can meet in those moments with a, with a student of any age. And I think that's where the kind of magic happens too, when we like remove our own stresses about what yeah. we're supposed to accomplish. And we think, well, yeah. who's sitting on my bench? What do they need today? And that's been something super life-giving too for for our culture at Motif. Absolutely. Teaching the student in front of you. I love that. What are you listening to right now? Well, you know, I don't I don't listen to a ton of music outside of like, all the music <laughs> I'm playing. I think yeah. sometimes my ears need a break because yeah. I do listen to like 
piles of the music I'm teaching. And so I was chuckling because the song actually on repeat was a song I was going to break down for a student was Boat by Ed Sheeran. And I was just playing through the chords, guitar yeah. chords for that. Yeah. So I was listening to that on repeat a little bit because I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to teach them how to break this down and improvise to it. So that that was of all the music I could choose. I'm like, oh yeah, an Ed Sheeran tune. And often <laughs> it's, it's often a wild detour for me, but I do love listening to just a lot of eclectic music but my ears also need a break sometimes and my kids are really loud so sometimes it's like okay I probably don't want to have anything else on right now (laughs) so yeah. yeah, I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks because for the same reason or music that is just completely different than the music that I'm teaching at the moment. I listen to like lots of folk music. Yeah, sometimes you just need to change lanes. Yeah. And two, I've been doing habit stacking a little bit more that if I have a less desirable task I need to do, I'll listen to a live stream or podcast to kind mm-hmm. of keep my brain busy while I do emails or things yeah. that are harder for me to dig into. I like that. Well, thank you so much for coming on loud and clear. Do you mind letting our audience know where they can find you? Absolutely. Yeah. So people can check out the YouTube channel. It's called Motif Music Studios on YouTube. And I'm also over on Instagram. I have a newer Instagram account called Coffee with Composers. You can find me there or our bigger account is Motif Music Studios. And I'm always available for questions by email too. So motifmusicstudios at gmail.com. Wonderful. And I'll have links to all the music and things that we've referenced in our show notes and your YouTube channel. And thanks again for coming on to talk with me, Amy. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.